Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Danny Lobel has been talking with comedians about their lives and everything else for longer than you may realize. First with his all-color glossy comical magazine, and then with Comical Radio in 2004, run out of the Baruch College radio station in New York City. Everyone came through, including the late great legend George Carlin. As podcasting became popular, Lobel decided to shut down Comical Radio and moved west to Los Angeles in 2012. He since has shared his stories from his life on This American Life and WTF with Mark Marin, and recently started not one but two podcasts, Modern Day Philosophers, pairing a comedian of today with an ancient philosopher, and the mostly bull market on CBS Radio's podcast network, where Lobel and a comedian guest learn about money and finance. How did Danny get where he got? And how do you receive an invite to dinner with Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner? He tells me the whole story. So let's get to it. So, Dana Lavelle, last things first. Uh, you have two podcasts now, uh, mostly Bull Market, yep. where you talk with comedians about Wall Street. And Modern Day Philosophers, where you talk to comedians about philosophy. Yeah. Are your podcasts just a way for you to get the education that you didn't get? Yes. Absolutely <laughs> true. Yeah. <laughs> you nailed it. Uh, what happened, this is really how it all started. With, with mod- First, uh, you know, I did, I did the, the early, some people say the first comedy podcast uh, to interview comedians, which was mm-hmm. Comical Radio. Started in 2004. And I did that for eight years, which you were on a bunch of times. And uh, after that ended, I didn't. I, I had a gap, and I moved out here. And I decided I had an idea for a podcast, and I launched it. And somebody had a, already had that. There's like a, a billion podcasts out now, so you don't you can't even tell what's out there. They had a different title, but you know, on, on the podcast they did the same thing. So when I googled it, it didn't show up that anyone was doing it. But like you know, they have a different title and they do it. Anyway, I didn't research it. You're that saying hard. there's more than one comedy podcast? Yeah, th- this guy had a similar theme to what I was doing, and he went nuts <laughs> on Twitter. Or he was he got all his podcast mm-hmm. people like tweeting angry at me. So I put out one episode, and then I was like, "This isn't worth the headache," so I cut it off, and mm-hmm. I was like, "I'm done podcasting." <laughs> and then I I used to work for Jackie Mason, and what I, did you do for Jackie? I sold his merch uh, at his Broadway show. Okay. So uh, we became very close, and that's how I got the job. He, he, uh, I had a comedy magazine called The Comical. That's the best. I knew of The Comical magazine before I knew that you had a radio show. Right. I remember seeing the magazine even at festivals that I went to. Yeah. Yeah, so I had that magazine, and I had Jackie on a cover, and I interviewed him. And then we became friends, and he was very impressed by the magazine. Like He was very impressed by the... I don't think he ever read it, but he was very impressed by the color schemes, which wasn't even me. It was Jason Sokoloff, who is the, um, I don't know if you know Jason. He's a comedian, but he I also does name. graphic design. Yeah. He came up with the color schemes, but he'd go, it's unbelievable, these color schemes. I can't believe it. It's so brilliant. I can't look at the contrast in the color. You know, you see expensive magazines. They don't have such vibrant color schemes. <laughs> so he was very, 
very impressed by the color schemes and the glossiness. Look at the glossiness of these pages. Shiny objects still have power. So, yeah, so he started telling me, come around to the album pan. That's where we hang out because at 5 o'clock all the pastries went on discount. And uh, <laughs> he said, you know, bring the magazine. I have some friends coming. I want to show them this magazine. And and for the first few times we hung out, that's all it was. Is you have the magazine? I mean, yeah, pull it out. Look at the vibrant colors and the glossiness of these pages. It's quality. Can't believe the magazine. This kid is putting out a magazine that looks this good. So then uh, he started getting in. You know, Jackie Prize a lot. He started asking me about my financial situation. Then he found out how broke I was. And he go, I can't believe that such a broke person has a magazine. I can't. You're the brokest magazine owner I've ever met. I don't think anybody else has no money and has a magazine. So he says, well, you should come and work at the Broadway show. So I started selling his merchandise, and George Carlin came to one of the shows, and he introduced us and said, this guy's got such a brilliant magazine. So uh, so George Carlin did a cover on the magazine, and then George Carlin and I became friends. And then when Carlin passed away, Jackie called me in the morning. He goes, you know, he was more than a comedian. He was a modern-day philosopher. Mm. And And that kind of stuck with me, those words. From that conversation, I always started thinking, like, who are the comedians and who are the modern-day philosophers? And I started thinking, like, Patrice O'Neill was a modern-day philosopher. Yes, he was. And, Speaking truth. Yeah. I started feeling like Colin Quinn is a modern-day philosopher. The comedians that really resonated with me were modern-day philosophers. And I moved to L.A. I was kind of lost here, and uh, I wasn't doing a podcast. I, I tried one for one episode, and I got attacked and by the, you know, by the Twitter oh, right. thing. And then uh, I didn't know what I was doing, and I was like, you know, maybe I should uh, kind of re-examine my comedy in terms of like it. Maybe it needs to be more philosophical, and because that's what I like, that's what I should be doing more. And maybe I, and then I realized I don't know anything about philosophy because I was a terrible student, like you, like you predicted. I, I I started thinking maybe I should uh, maybe I should read up some philosophy to sort mm-hmm. of understand if I could figure out what the philosophers were saying. Maybe I could make some of these ideas funny or or ideas that resonate with me could be funny. You know, I, let let me actually look into philosophy because it seems like something I'd be interested in. So I I picked up Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed and it was very it's very dense it's very hard to read. I got through some of it, and I, I started reading. I started with the Jewish ones. I started reading some Spinoza, and uh, I just couldn't really make much out of what they were saying by actually looking at their books, not synopsises or anything like that. I was like, I want to actually read the text. So then I thought, I'll go on Craigslist and find a tutor, a philosophy tutor, and you know that's that's the advantage of having all your day empty. Maybe I can find somebody who for. Twenty dollars once a week will come over and teach me this stuff. Was it easy to find somebody? I didn't even put up the ad because, okay. you know, I, I I started telling my now wife Kylie I was like I'm gonna I'm gonna put up a Craigslist thing. She's like, all right, but I procrastinate. So before I do anything, I tell a hundred people I'm gonna do it, and then I eventually do it. You know, right? So as I'm telling people I'm gonna put on a, an ad, started people started saying. Um, well, you should. You ought to have a friend who's interested in studying philosophy with you. Maybe you don't need to spend the money. And I, I said, oh, yeah, you're right. And then I was at a party, and Matt Kirshen, the comedian Matt Kirshen, was there. 
Yes. And I said, uh, I thought to myself, he seems like a kind of guy who might like philosophy. And uh, we were hanging out, and I said, hey, Matt, you want to come over sometime and study philosophy with me? And he goes, what, you mean like as a podcast? <laughs> I was like, and it hit me, maybe it's weird to just invite people over to study philosophy as a comedian. I mean, you have to put a microphone in front of people for them to talk. Right. So I go, yeah, it's a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> And then I was like, you know, why not make it a podcast? So so that's how it came about, and I really started learning a lot from every week. Uh, I got Alex Fasella involved. He was a philosophy major. He's a comic in New York who I've been friends with for a long time, and he picks out a philosopher who has something in common with the comedian who I'm talking to. Okay. And he gives us a synopsis because it's so hard to read, the. but then he also gives us a paragraph of the actual writing. So we get a feel for the language of how they wrote and everything. But you don't have to do quotes. a lot of homework. I don't have to do any homework. And then I don't even He's look done at the it. prep work for you and, yeah. the, and for the comedian. Yeah. I don't even look at it till the guest is there because I figured out early on that if I read it before the guest shows up, mm -hmm. then all of a sudden I'm just teaching the guest. <laughs> it's, not, it's not fun. It's right. more fun if we're learning together. So, so that, that actually wound up taking off uh, and I wound up getting all these great comedians on it. And then I'm still broke, and I start thinking, I wish I knew something about finance. Maybe that should be the next podcast. So I pitched it to CBS, and they liked it, and, and now we're doing the Mostly Bull Market, which is, I said, it's the same thing, because they wanted modern-day philosophers, because uh, it's, like, up in the charts and all mm -hmm. that stuff, and somebody told them about it, and they asked me, will you bring modern-day philosophers to CBS? And I said, no, I, I like the independence of it, because I heard, you know, they have to this and that. Like they they have control of the feed and oh really yeah so so I was like I I already built it up I don't need you guys mm -hmm. so I said but I'll start another podcast with you and see how that goes and they said what would be the idea I said we'll just do modern day philosophers but we'll do it with finance instead of philosophy because I'm interested to learn about that too and they said yeah and then uh, that's how that happened oh nice yeah now let's go back to you being a broke New York kid, what was the first thing that made you decide you had to put out your own magazine about comedy? Um, You've you seen the movie American Splendor? Yes. So I was doing stand-up, uh, probably at that point, bringer shows, and uh, and I was, was very ambitious. I kept sending in writing to different places, and uh, the Lampoon, I think, was still going, the National Lampoon mm -hmm. or something. I remember I submitted something to them, and I submitted to the New Yorker. <laughs> never, I would have never got anything in the New Yorker, but I, but I didn't realize that. You don't know. Cartoons or? No, in our, uh, uh, Shouts and shouts Murmurs. Shouts and Murmurs, okay. And I was just coming up with all these submissions. I was like, I'm determined to get my writing out there. And How old were you? 19. Okay. And And then the movie American Splendor came out. And I, I watched it, and it, it like, blew me away, because I felt like Harvey Pekar, and I had, like, I was like, here's a schleppy Jew like me, and, and this guy, he just went for it, you know? Mm -hmm. He just, he didn't wait for anybody to, because no one was accepting my submissions. Right. I was like, he just put his own stuff out in his own voice. He didn't cater it to fit a certain format or style, and uh, and he made it, he made it happen. It got him a wife. Like, I was, like, just so blown away by the whole story. So I went to see it two more times in the theater. And then I was like, I hadn't interviewed anybody famous or anything. I didn't know famous people. So, like, I was r really nervous, but I was like, I got to talk to Harvey Picard. Like, uh, 
I guess up until that point, he was the most famous person that, you know, I was about to speak to was Harvey Picard. Okay. And uh, I was thinking to myself, I wonder, because he, I saw the movie three times and he talks about how proud he was to be in the phone book. I thought, I bet you he's still in the phone book. <laughs> I was going to ask how you got a hold of Harvey Picard. Yeah. So I looked up the Cleveland Heights phone book mm-hmm. and there he was, Harvey Picard. So I called him. I was so nervous, my whole mouth went dry. Like I was, I like kept like missing words when I was talking to him. My sure. heart was beating like crazy. He an- answered the phone, and there was that scratchy voice, and mm-hmm. and oh, you know, and I go, Har- Harvey, <laughs> yes. I was like, oh, my. I wanted to hang up right there. I was so nervous, but I talked to him, and uh, I said, yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm a comedian. I'm starting out. I thought your movie was amazing, and. Uh, I keep writing things and nobody publishes them, but I really want to like. I said when I was a little kid, I had I used to make a comic book in school and I'd photocopy the pages and sell them to people in my class. It's just true. You sold them. Uh, yeah, I sold. <laughs> you didn't give them out for free. <laughs> no, I sold them. What did you sell them for? Seven dollars each. What? Yeah, <laughs> it was the best business I've ever done in my life. How how popular was it? Well, it was a private school. It was a yeshiva. Oh, so okay. uh, most of the kids there came from money. Like I was, my family was one of the only like families that was struggling in the whole school. Okay. So all the other kids were, were well to do. So you knew what you were doing, setting the price that high. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, I could. They, they can afford it. <laughs> and I sold quite a, a quite a few copies. And one guy actually told me, and I want to see it. I haven't seen it because everything I had was destroyed in Hurricane Sandy. Oh. So like all my my copies of the comic books are gone. But one copy of one comic book, somebody reached out to me from an old classmate. He said, mm-hmm. I still have it sealed in plastic because I'm hoping you're going to get famous <laughs> and it's going to be worth money. And he's like, I paid $7 because I would write the price on like they had in the comic books. Yeah, sure. It was you know, in the top corner. In the top corner. I wrote on $7. So mm-hmm. he's like, I know how much I paid for it. It's on there. And um, I had an Irish superhero that I created called Clover. And uh, Good name. Yeah. And uh, he uh, – anyway, so I told Picar, I'm like, man, I wish I could still do that kind of thing. Like, And he goes, well, what do you mean you wish you could still do it? Why can't you? I, I was like, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, I'm not going to just, I mean, just like photocopy stuff and hand it out to people. And like, he's like, well, you can make a magazine. I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can you really? So, so he's like, yeah. He's like, you don't have to wait to be published. Make your own magazine. Mm-hmm. So I, I said, I will. I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. He's like, all right. I was like, okay, thanks, goodbye. And then I hung up, and I realized I just committed. To, I just told Harvey Picar, <laughs> like this guy who's now like my hero. I just told him I'm going to make a magazine, and I was like, all right, I can never call him again unless I make that magazine. I really thought like, oh, man, I'd love to call him again, like have a friendship with this guy, but mm-hmm. I can't be like the guy who said he's going to do something and not do it. I literally made a magazine just so I could call Harvey Picar again and say, hey, I made a magazine. And then I called him. I, I, I figured out how to make a magazine. Mm-hmm. I got a friend who was the one to invest. I looked into printing places. Mm-hmm. I spoke to the college newspaper, found out where they print, and and uh, and I, I started going around and getting advertisers. And I was talking to comedian friends who, who also wanted to be published and collecting their stories. And I said I wanted to be, like, really cool, just like people's stories, just stories, stories. And, uh, and then I'll do a big interview for the cover with a famous comedian and... And then I, I called Harvey and I said, 
I'm actually doing it. I'm making the magazine. Uh, will you give me cartoons for it? Mm-hmm. And he was like, wow, okay, yeah. He's like, uh, I have some stuff that wasn't published or seen for years. Uh, you could just, he's like, I'm not going to make you new stuff, but you mm-hmm. could, uh, you could republish that stuff. Okay. And, uh, and, uh, I said, okay, great. And he sent me some stuff and I scanned it and, and then, uh, and there it was. That was it. Who else was in the, what else was in the first issue? Um, David Tell was on the cover, and uh, it's so funny because, like, when I look back at the interview, it's like the questions were so stupid, but it was just because I didn't know anything about comedy, really. I was just a bringer, and I was mm-hmm. like, I thought David Tell, like, I'm like, hey, like, I was just like, wow, you're so famous. He's like, I'm not that famous. I have a basic <laughs> cable show. <laughs> right, because he, he had, had insomniac. insomniac at the time. <laughs> and I was like, I was just blown away by it all. I'm like. You know, what is it like to work blue? That was mm-hmm. one of my questions. <laughs> that was so terrible. Now, uh, so you you get somebody to invest. You you go, like, door to door to get advertisers, or are you cold calling people? So, yeah, I started col- I started collecting all the, the newspapers, the Village of Voice, mm-hmm. uh, any free publication I could find in New York, and there's like a thousand of them. And I started calling up all the ads. Oh, the people and, who advertise in those. Yeah. You're like, maybe they'll advertise right. in the comical. Right. And then I gave away a bunch of them for free. Uh, in what ho- happened to $7? Yeah. But I got a bunch of people, people to buy them. Okay. And then, and then I, couldn't, I didn't have enough to fill it, so then I had to give away free ads mm-hmm. just to make it look like more people were advertising. Oh, okay. The advertising was free. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and, then, and then the magazine was free, too. Oh. Yeah. We put it in all the comedy clubs and all the colleges in New York. We got a van. It was, it was quite a thing. I got a van. I got the van decaled to say the comical on it. Mm-hmm. And we loaded it up with papers and drove it all over the tri-state area. Loading, uh, We did 50,000 issues of print. And we would put like, you know, and we broke it up into like 200 issues goes to NY. Well, NYU got more, but like 200 issues would go to Baruch or, mm-hmm. you know, 1,000 go to NYU. And 50,000 is a ton. And it just like, it was, it was a, a three days of just me. And my two friends, Dave and Sal, who I got involved in the magazine with me. Uh, Were Dave, they from Yeshiva? Or? Dave is from Yeshiva. Actually, both of them are from Yeshiva. Uh, Sal and I met in, in Israel. We did a, a year abroad in mm-hmm. Israel in like a work-study program, which was part Yeshiva. And Dave and I were in this Yeshiva that we both got kicked out of like good Yeshivas and wound up in this reject Yeshiva together. Okay. And, uh, and Dave... Um, Dave was the one bankroll, who bankrolled it. I was he had, ask, he came you... from money and he had he had money and he's like, yeah, I got, I got a lot enough a lot of money. He wasn't doing anything. He's like, oh, I'd like to start a magazine. Okay. So uh, and Sal Sal was a Columbia student and he was uh, I thought he was going to have good business ac- acumen. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he really did in the end, but he was uh, he was good. I'm not going to knock Sal. He was good. So you get the first magazine out. Right. Then did you have plans to keep it going? Yeah, I I was thinking, you know, we brought it to Montreal, to the Montreal Comedy Festival, the first magazine. I didn't know. I was so new to comedy. I was just pretending. (laughs) Everything was just a big pretend. Mm -hmm. And it all came from an interview with John Lennon, where I really took it very literally. Like, where they're like, I asked him, like, uh, you know, how do you know what you were doing? He's like, we didn't know what we were doing. We were just pretending. And I and I thought, well, if he could do it, I could do it. Mm-hmm. So 
I was just pretending like I was like really part of the comedy world, but I wasn't. You know, I was I was a bringer. Mm-hmm. So I showed up at Just for Laughs. I I just thought it was an I I really knew nothing. <laughs> I was very ignorant and I didn't research. I just thought it was a Canadian comedy festival. I didn't think it was anything special or anything. And you didn't realize you were going to the comedy festival, right? Right. We went to Aspen too, and H- the HBO Aspen. That's the first place I saw the magazine. Yeah, was in Aspen. <laughs> I was like, what is, I, because I didn't know there was a comedy magazine, so to even see one, <laughs> it's like, wait, what is this? Yeah. Who are these people? You're right. Yeah. <laughs> what are they doing? a bunch of Yeshiva dropouts, you know? I had no idea <laughs> what the comical was, but I was immediately jealous. I was like, what is this thing? Why don't I have this thing? Yeah. Oh, man. It was a constant struggle to keep it going. Mm-hmm. It was insane. Print media was dying. Yes. I didn't. I barely knew how to use my email. I was, I've never been computer savvy. Mm-hmm. I, it was. Uh, we put up a website, but it was barely interactive or anything, and it took forever to load images back then. Right. You know, forget about like YouTube or anything. It was just like, you know, it was a crazy time. We got all these people. You know, we got Dane Cook to submit a story. Uh, right in the height of his blowing up. How did you get people to contribute and take part in this? I just har- I harassed you people. You weren't a, when you weren't a known. Yeah, I was not a known. <laughs> or comedian. I just harassed them. <laughs> I just show up and, you know, like uh, Colin Quinn would just get off stage. I go, "Hi, uh, I have a comedy magazine. I'd love to interview you." Mm-hmm. And you go, "Huh? Okay, you know." Mm-hmm. And uh, no, there no, there were no podcasts. Nobody was asking anybody for interviews. It was right. just like it was rare. You know what year was this? Two thousand and uh, it would be two thousand four, around the same time I started the comical podcast, which was like the very first podcast we did on 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 my college radio sh- station. Yeah, how did how did that start? I had a roommate who was a, a big see. I didn't know anything about computers, but he was like a really big dork, mm-hmm. and he was like, "There's this new thing called podcasting, and you could take your college radio show." And you could put it on on the internet, and and people can find it. Mm-hmm. And there was no iTunes directory, like there is now. There was there was none of that. Mm-hmm. It was very hard to find a podcast, and no one knew what a podcast was. It would be like calling it a phenomenon or something, you know. <laughs> people, like, I have a phenomenon, so I I didn't even say I have a podcast. Right. I only told people I have a radio show because I I didn't want to have a long conversation about what a podcast is. Also, I'd get stumped. I barely understood what it was myself. <laughs> I just let him handle it. I said, you know, he he was an aspiring comedian, mm-hmm. so I would get him some stage time, and I'd let him uh, be on the show mm-hmm. uh, on Comical. In exchange, he did, he did all the coding, and he would put up these podcasts. And occasionally, we would get an email from someone that found the podcast, but there was no concept of podcasts. It was not a, it wasn't a thing at all. And you were doing this from the college radio station, anyhow. So it seemed. Right. So so yeah, it was it was a college radio show first, right? It was a college and then radio also show available first. as a podcast. Yeah, and then we called it Comical Radio to match the magazine, so it would all seem like syndicated. Uh, right. What's it called? Branding? Synchronized, whatever. Right. So yeah, so it was originally the Danny LaBelle show, mm-hmm. and we're like, oh, let's just call it Comical Radio. We'll have Comical Radio, Comical Magazine, we'll have different branches of comical stuff. Then the magazine went under, and it was just Comical Radio for a long time. Now for the radio show, was that? Easier to get guests than getting people no to harder submit for the magazine harder because well okay it's submitting getting an interview for the magazine is mm-hmm. easy because people want to be in print okay 
getting people to submit was really hard because nobody wants to sit down and write something. Right. So <laughs> I'm aware of that myself. Yeah. The website. Yeah. It's very hard. And then mm-hmm. when they do write something and they turn it in and it's crappy, and then you're in an awkward position with someone you didn't want to be in an awkward position with. Like, I'm friends with this comedian. We're we're doing good. We're mm-hmm. having a we're, we have a nice friendship. I say, hey, why don't you write something for my magazine? Then they send me something, and it's just such garbage. I don't know what to do. So I would say, hey, I need you to work on the article, and and these are the things that I think are wrong with it. And you know, I'm not trying to change your voice or anything, but I just think it doesn't read very funny or anything. Sure. Uh, so so can you send it back? Then they'd send it back, and it would still be awful. <laughs> and then I go, okay, look, this is what you got to do. And, and at a certain point, they'd be like, I don't want to write it. Okay, just forget it. I don't. Or or I just like, oh, I don't want to go through this with mm-hmm. that. I know how this is going to go. I just be like, okay, thank you for the submission. I don't think we're going to get it in. And they'd be like, I sat there and wrote that for you, and you're not going to put it in. So it was like, that was a tough thing. That was tough because you lose friends. You know, people's egos would get hurt. But there were some writers who were great. DC Benny was great, and I never, ever asked him to change anything. Mm-hmm. And he, he, would, he, would, he would never uh, give me a hard time. About writing, and then Patrice O'Neill, I I asked him, it would be funny to do it like a Dear Abby column with you, like mm-hmm. Dear Patrice. People ask you relationship advice because his re- relationship advice was so off the wall and and filthy and, and but ridiculous. Also, but you also know? honest. It was honest, and sincere. Right, right, right. It was it was it was all those things. It was mm-hmm. great, and it was crazy. It was just nothing like you see anywhere. So I said we should do Dear Patrice. What do you think of that? He loved the idea. And I kept saying, hey, did you write one? I sent him some questions. Do you write anything? Mm-hmm. He never would sit down and write anything. He would never actually. He's like, nah, ah, Danny, ah, I'm so busy, man. I'm like, but this would be great. So mm-hmm. finally I said to him, what if I come and I record you answering these questions and then I just have have somebody type up your answers? He says, okay. So he tells me to meet him. Um, by by uh, by the path station in New Jersey. He picks me up in this SUV, and it was me and my friend Leo, who we who was the editor at the college newspaper, who I hired on to the magazine because mm-hmm. uh, he knew editing and stuff. And and we had a, a little camcorder, and like Patrice pulls into this neighborhood that I don't know. I don't know if it was dangerous, but it felt dangerous to me. It felt really sketchy. We were just like this like this alleyway. And just pulls up. It mm-hmm. felt like a drug deal was going down. And I'm asking him these questions, dear Patrice, and I'm filming him. And I'm looking around, and like, like there's tires, just random tires. It really, it was a very funny scene. Mm-hmm. And that's that's how we did the very first dear Patrice. And then went back. I edited them to make them, you know, not 20 minute long answers. You know, got right. the funniest parts, put it together, and then it was a big hit. People loved dear Patrice. And uh, and then after that, Patrice would meet me where I want to meet and, and continue doing them because his mother got a copy. <laughs> Somebody sent his mother a copy, and she called him and said how proud she was of him. Oh, wow. And that changed everything. His whole attitude changed towards dear Patrice because his mother loved it. So, And she got to see it because you had this because, brilliant color magazine. Right, right, brilliant. And and we we dropped them in Boston. We started dropping them in Boston. That's how it got to her. Okay. We, we we made a deal with the Boston Comedy Festival, and they started distributing for us a bunch of places in Boston. But getting people to show up at the uh, college radio station at Baruch, was that, in the beginning, was that easy was or was hard. that tough? 
at, at the beginning it was tough. Um, a lot, especially like the headliners didn't want to show up. Mm-hmm. But then I figured out the the easy thing was get somebody bigger than them to do it, and then everybody smaller than that person just mentioned that the bigger person did it, and they would all come. And then when George Carlin came in, that was it. Everybody came in. Because people would be like, oh, man, I don't know. And I'd be like, well, George Carlin did it. Oh, really? George Carlin came into your college radio show? <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. When do you want to do this? Mm-hmm. Now, how did you get Carlin? Uh, well, after we met at the Broadway show, I interviewed him for the magazine. Mm-hmm. And uh, it took forever to get the interview. He rescheduled on me like nine times, but he was very specific. Okay. He'd be like, call me. January 29th in the evening. Mm-hmm. And it would be like three months away. And I'd write it down in my calendar. <laughs> and then January 29th, and mm-hmm. whenever it was the evening, I'd call him. And it was like, very good. <laughs> like, you passed this test. <laughs> but I can't do it now. Call me mm-hmm. March 2nd at 12 o'clock. I'd be like, okay. <laughs> March 2nd, 12 o'clock. I'd be like, ah, he's on time. Passed level two. Call me April 14th, you know, mm-hmm. and this happened six or seven times, I mean, maybe even more, and oh, it took more than a year, I think. I, I can't swear to that, but it probably at least took almost a year, mm-hmm. and I finally got him to do the interview, and we had a very nice talk, and then after the interview, he said, if I haven't properly answered any questions when you look it over, or if you feel like you'd like me to expound on anything or go more in depth in an answer or clarify anything for you, Feel free to call me, and I'll I'll be happy to do that. All right, thanks very much. All right, great. Let me hang up, and I realize either I could come up with more questions for Carlin about what he said, mm-hmm. or I'll never speak to him again. You know, I was like, I have a chance to want to talk to George Carlin again, or I could just say I'm happy with how this turned out. Kind of like your moment with Harvey Picar. Right, yeah. It's always like that with me. <laughs> it's just it's like, like, oh, I had this dream. This yeah. become a reality. Now what do I do? Right, right. So I was like, all right, got to come up with more questions for Carlin. So I, <laughs> I, I had uh, really asked him everything I had at the time to ask. Okay. And uh, I didn't know what else to say, so I called him up. And I said, I had these VHS tapes that I bought uh, from Rhino, the Rhino Company. Rhino Records? Rhino Records. Mm-hmm. It was John and Yoko guest host the Mike Douglas show in, in the 70s. And yeah. one of their guests was George Carlin. And I'm a huge Carlin fan. I'm a huge John Lennon fan. I figured I should call him up and ask him about his interactions with John and Yoko on the Mike Douglas show. Sure. That would be a cool... Uh, I, I want to know right now. Yeah. <laughs> so so I called him back. That was my follow-up question. Mm-hmm. I only had that. Okay. I said, hey, you know, you said if you have any follow-up questions, I could call before the article comes out. Uh, I have one. Yeah, sure. What is it? Well, in 1977, you were uh, a guest on the Mike Douglas show with uh, John and Yoko guest hosting. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was it like uh, there with uh, your interactions with John Lennon? I don't fucking remember, man. I was on Coke, I think. <laughs> I said, oh, yeah? <laughs> I go, see, I don't remember any of it? Not really, man. Nah, I was pretty high. Uh, (laughs) Nothing comes to mind from that. I go, all right. Well, thanks, Amiga. I'll talk to you later. (laughs) (laughs) That was it. That was the whole call. 
Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I was like, oh. Sometimes that's what you get. I was like hitting myself on the head. Stupid idiot. That's all you had. You know, I was so upset. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, that's it. And then I sent George a, a handwritten thank you note with a copy of the magazine with him. Mm-hmm. And then uh, he wrote me back. And uh, and he said, if you ever have any questions or advice about mm-hmm. stand-up or if you just want to talk about gigs, give me a call anytime. I love your magazine. So I was always so very kind and gracious with other yeah comedy people. He was so cool, and so I started calling him, and then uh, he even started calling me sometimes. And we had these amazing phone calls. I would call him. He'd love if I call him after a set mm-hmm. and just tell him how it went. So I'd be like, "Oh, I had this." My favorite one was I, I, and probably the only one I retained in my memory is that I, I had a really bad bomb at the Village Lantern one night, mm-hmm. and I called him up and I said, "Hey, yeah, um, I had a I had a show tonight." He goes, "How'd it go?" I go, "Well, not so great to be honest with you. I really bombed. I really tanked." Um, I was, he says, "Where was it? The Village Lantern. Where's that?" And he told him the address. He goes, "Oh, right near uh, Bitter End." I go, "Yeah, a block away." Oh yeah, man! I used to bomb there all the time on those streets. He's like the yeah. He goes, uh, leaker. He goes, those were some long subway rides back to Harlem, man. Let me tell you that, long subway rides where you're just like, what am I doing with my life? Like I suck. And like he's like, but I'll tell you what I learned. It's not you, man. It's the crowds. Hmm. I was like, really? <laughs> he's like, he's like, he could tell you that sight unseen. Yeah. <laughs> it was not you. Not you. <laughs> he's like, the crowds, man. You mm-hmm. know what's funny. They don't know what's funny. Mm-hmm. You're the one who knows what's funny. So don't ever let them tell you what's funny. It's not you. It's the crowds. And I was like, cool. And I just remember hanging up and feeling this like elation that me and George had bombed on the same street, you know, and. Both had the miserable rides back in the subway. So what was the, uh, now that you're out here in Los Angeles, you moved out here in 2012? I guess so. What was the last straw for you that you're like, even though I've been a New Yorker all my life and I've traveled for gigs, it's time for me to make the move? I've been talking about it for a long time with Kylie. And uh, things started getting really bad in the building. I lived across the hall from Ecuadorian gangsters who I oh. became friends with, but they were still, uh, they were still wild and crazy. And like the, they were all called Blanco. Mm-hmm. They were big Blanco, little Blanco, me and Blanco. There was all these Blancos and like the main Blanco. Uh, and I were, we were friends and we even raised a rooster together in the backyard and a chicken. But even though we love, he, we're still friends. Now it's easier to be friends with him because we're, we're just Facebook friends and we chat on, on Facebook right. uh, and Skype sometimes. All electronic. Yeah. So it's it's easy to be friends with someone like that. But when you live right across the hall from him and he'd come home sometimes and he'd be, you know, on crack mm-hmm. and he'd be out of his mind, he would forget that we were friends. Mm-hmm. And and he came over twice. He held a knife to my neck in front of Kylie and she'd be like crying. It was like a dramatic scene from a movie. And I, and I was like, I guess because I didn't want to face how scary it was, I pretended it wasn't scary at all. And I'd be like, come on, get that knife out of here. But also, I was also just being brave for Kylie. I was, if she wasn't there, I probably would have been the one crying. Mm-hmm. But I also think I wanted to make her feel stupid for crying at the time because, uh, I was, I was immature. <laughs> so. Still trying to find the humor. <laughs> I was just be like, come being, on, you're being so point. dramatic, Kylie. Because she will, she would always be like, we have to leave, but it was rent controlled. So I was always like, 
despite no matter how bad things would get, I would pretend they're not that bad because I'd be like, you're being so dramatic. What are you crying about? Because he held a knife to my neck? Mm-hmm. We don't have to leave. You know, this is a great location. We're we're right near everything. We're you know we're right we're we're in Bushwick. We're right by Bedford Avenue. We're mm-hmm. not too far from from all the action. What are you talking about? We have a good rent, a nice place in New York. Mm-hmm. It's scary. I yelled a knife to your neck. It's not scary. What the hell are you talking about? But it was. It was terrifying. It was terrifying. And uh, they started getting into fights with another gang in the neighborhood. And then the gang would like smash the windows in our building. And then, uh, I missed this one, but, oh, no, New Year's Eve, I didn't miss this one. New Year's Eve, I don't know what happened, but we came back after going out for the night, and the whole hallway, because we're on the first floor, Mm -hmm. so the whole hallway of the first floor was just, like, soaked in blood, and there were finger streaks of blood on the white walls, and there was shards of glass, and there was punch, punch holes in the wall in the... In the hallway wall of the of the drywall, you know, you when you punch yeah, a yeah. wall, and um, and it was just like, it was it was it was like out of a horror movie. That was that was huge, and then that was that was one of the ones where I I couldn't even defend it to Kylie. I'd be like, okay, this is this is bad. Uh, um, Did you ever find out what happened that night? Yeah. He got in a fight with a taxi driver. He got wasted New Year's Eve, mm-hmm. and he took a taxi from Manhattan back to Brooklyn, mm-hmm. and he tried to get out and not pay, and the guy followed him in, and uh, and and he beat the guy up. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it was reported to the cops, and then they wanted me to, the landlord wanted me to testify that my neighbor was a violent guy. I said, but, first of all, I'm not going to do that, because I'm not stupid. Right. And also... I had a friendly, workable relationship with him when he's not high. Right. You know, we were friends when he wasn't high. He was like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde because he could be the sweetest guy ever. He would come over and he would mop my place. He would break in and mop my kitchen, which he thought was hilarious because he'd be like... (laughs) It's kind of funny. Yeah. (laughs) To break in and mop. (laughs) He would. He would. He'd show up with Fabuloso on a mop and, and and he'd be like, your place is a mess, nigga. Your place is a mess. I'd be like... What are you talking about? He's like, I broke, I broke in. First of all, you got them bullshit fucking locks in your on your door. Anybody could break in. I broke the fuck in, and I mopped your shit because you live like a slob, motherfucker. I'm like, what? I come in, be sparkling clean. Mm-hmm. And then, and then he'd also like cook for me a lot of the time. He loved to cook. Uh, you know, he's like, uh, he'd make me chicken. It's just talking about it brings back yeah. the sounds of New York. <laughs> this Ecuadorian chicken he would make me with uh, this. Is, I forget the spice. Mm-hmm. He had some Spanish spice. He used. It was amazing. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, he he would be like, "You safe here, man? You safe? Ain't no one messing with you guys. You my niggas. You like nobody's messing with you guys." And I'd be like, "Okay, maybe we're safe," you know. <laughs> And Kylie's like, the only reason anyone would mess with us is because we live in this building because they're here. They're not safe. Right. I'm like, but they, we got protection, you know? This is, and then also, like, sometimes you knock on the door and, like, you'd be like, you want to come over to my place and smoke and, and watch Kevin Hart? No, it wasn't Kevin Hart. It was Cat Williams. And, and, and that was fun. We, we would always love to watch Cat Williams and smoke on his couch and, Big and, he, yeah, he, he, it was the only time I ever watched Cat Williams, but, 
with him because he would he would die. He'd be like on the floor laughing at Cat Williams. Sure, it made it the most fun experience. I became like a big Cat Williams fan. I never would have watched Cat Williams otherwise. But, but you know, so we had like a real bond. But he was also unpredictable and and violent. And he and he also bred pit bulls, and he did tattoos out of his place. And I bought one of his pit bull puppies off him, which I still have. You just met her, so um, very kind, very kind dog. Yeah, she's so sweet. So she was born in his apartment across okay. the hall. I bought her for five hundred bucks off of him, and uh, I don't know. So that's 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 what it was. A complicated relationship, and mm-hmm. things got really bad. New Year's Eve was was like a pull of blood, and then the one we missed is we went away. And we came back, and there were bullet holes in the, in the door, and then we're like in your door, right. yeah, in the door of the building, oh, not, okay. not my specific door, but oh, okay. my door is right next. We were in you know two units on the first floor, so oh, okay, that's very that's scarily close. Right. There were bullet holes, and and there were shells, and and they're like, yeah, man, be careful, everybody, everybody who comes in and out of this building, you got to be careful. People say they they want to come in, you got to question everybody. Mm. So Kylie's like, this is ridiculous. We're going to wind up, you know, dead. We got to get out of here. We're not questioning everyone who comes into the building. So we packed up everything we had that we wanted to take with us um, in a car. We put the place up on Craigslist. We explained to the person renting, you know, this is the rent is cheap, but this is the situation. They didn't care. It's New York. We uh, we didn't tell him we were leaving because I want him to like. He would confiscate my dog sometimes because he'd be like, "That's my dog," because I bought it from him. Oh right. So he would. I knew that he would get very mad if I left because, because I was a friend, you know. Right. And and he was like very like possessive of of like me and Kylie being in the building, so we didn't tell him we're leaving. We just packed up the dogs, packed up the stuff in the car, got someone on Craigslist to take over the place, and we left and we moved to Florida. And uh, oh, you went to Florida before here. Yeah. Well, we, that's like where California. we strategized where to go next. Okay. We, we rented a, we found a place on Craigslist. It all happened within three days, mm-hmm. and we, it was all done in secret. We secretly escaped. It's like the closest I'll know to like what it was like in, in the forties in Germany. Like it was like we went to, uh, we escaped New York. We literally escaped New York. We went to the bodegas. We asked for their empty cardboard boxes. We loaded whatever we could get into the Toyota Camry. We put our dogs in the car. And at like three in the morning, when when he was asleep and everything, mm-hmm. we left. We left the place open with the keys for the next guy, and instructions when when mm-hmm. to come in, and and uh, and we drove to St. Cloud, Florida, where we found a place on Craigslist for a, a house to rent for three hundred for a month on a lake. Wow! And we lived there, and uh, I got very into Everybody Loves Raymond, <laughs> <laughs> and mini golf, and Golden Corral. And smoking cigars, mm-hmm. uh, which I always liked, but I smoked like a cigar every day I was there. I remember because I found these Cubans that rolled cigars, and mm-hmm. and there were alligators in the lake. And the neighbor had an airboat, and he'd go out alligator hunting, and he'd take us along. I wouldn't hunt them, but I, it was an exciting experience to be a part of to see that culture, you know. And uh, and that was, and that's when we we were like, all right, we're gonna go to L.A. You didn't want to stay out. in Saint Cloud. No. <laughs> no, it's good for a. It was good for a for month. An escape. Yeah, I was. I was literally becoming an elderly person. I was painting on the lake. Mm-hmm. I, I was just like you know, I was an old old person. I started going to sleep early after I'd watch Raymond. We'd go to the early bird special at Golden Corral. Mm. We'd come home. I'd be like, we have to be home in time for Raymond. 
and then I I would I would go to sleep and I'd wake up the next day and I'd paint by the lake. It was like a very like Norman Rockwell esque existence I had. How long did it take you to acclimate to the Los Angeles comedy scene, Hollywood show business? I'm only now starting to acclimate, so three years I really? would say. I'm only now getting out there on a regular basis. Like, I I was going from doing many sets a night in New York, to when I got here, and it was just so hard to get stage time. And only in the last six months would I say almost every night I'm out there now. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, otherwise it would be like two or three times a week. And I, I don't know. It was it was a tough it was a tough transition for me because. So I left a lot of my stuff in Brooklyn. I barely had any stuff here. I had $300 to my name. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had no credit. And um, we came here, and, and somehow it was a miracle. We made it work. But it was, uh, it was really, really tough. Have you, what's the last time you thought about uh, going back to New York? Never. So, oh, the thing is what happened, a lot of my stuff was in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And I figured I'll go back and I'll get it with a moving truck at some point, you know. Uh, but what happened was Hurricane Sandy happened. And I had all this stuff, like my comic book collection from when I was a kid. I had also written to all the famous comedians as a kid for autographed pictures. And I had a ton of autographed oh, pictures wow. of, like, Billy Crystal and Mel Brooks. And all these guys wrote me back and... I had all these collections preserved in my parents' basement. Uh, I had tons of Beatles memorabilia, World War II stuff, oh. watches. I used to collect all all these things. Like as a kid, I dog walked constantly, and I built these massive collections. My parents gave me the whole garage, and it was all like these huge gar- collections that I had um, because my dad scared the hell out of us as kids because he was a photographer. He's retired now, but he he was a photographer. And we always struggled for money. And he always said, boys, the only thing I'm ever going to leave you is debt. So, you, you know, you're on your own. Uh, don't, you know, the other kids in our school were all wealthy. Right. He's like, don't don't think that you're like them because you're not going to get anything. The only thing you'll inherit from me is debt. I'm, I, I'm struggling constantly. Life is, is all about money. Money is blood. All these kinds of things. He would scare the hell out of us. So I, I and the only thing, like, he had these baseball cards that he kept from a kid. He said it's like his only valuable thing were these baseball cards. So I'm like, oh, I better start collecting baseball cards so I have a valuable thing. <laughs> and it started there, and then I started collecting yeah. everything I could hear was collectible. Sure. I, I built these massive collections. and That was your investment. Yeah, and I worked like a dog as a kid, walking dogs, and selling uh, laser pointers and, and lighters on the boardwalk that I get from Manhattan, anything to make money to buy collectibles to store away for when I, when I need it. Mm-hmm. And I must have spent, you know... Upwards of $50,000 on stuff in the collection. Who knows what it was worth? It was all destroyed in Hurricane Sandy. And my parents called me. They said, you know, our, our whole basement was destroyed. They lost way more than I lost. And uh, the house is in danger, and we need your help. Come home. So Kylie and I went back, and the entire Long Beach, New York, where my parents live, was hit so hard. There was, like, uh, FEMA trucks and Red Cross trucks driving, giving people sandwiches in the street. The streets were covered in sand that yeah. had washed up from the beach. Everybody's stuff was in piles in front of their house. It was like, it was so surreal. It was like, wow, my whole childhood has been washed away. All the stores were shut down and never reopened that I knew from a kid. It was like, it was like my whole like childhood was like washed, like like in a etch a sketch, you know. Right. 
Yeah. And uh, while I was in New York for Hurricane Sandy, mm-hmm. I got a message from the landlord that they were going to evict me from my Brooklyn apartment because they found out I wasn't living there. All happened at once. Huh. And and then I went over to, to the huh. landlord's office and I said, you can't prove that I'm not living there. I'm part-time there. I'm not there. And they said, look, we'll give you some money to just leave and make this easy. So they gave us money, and we were like, fine, the apartment is yours. They're like, they have to sign this contract that we get, that you'll have all your stuff out by the end of the week mm-hmm. and, and if you want the money. So fine, we signed the contract. I couldn't get any moving company because of Hurricane Sandy right. to come and get my stuff out of Brooklyn. I couldn't get it out. I, I, I couldn't. I, I, the car, I didn't have my parents' car because their cars were destroyed by Hurricane Sandy. The batteries were fried, so I couldn't drive my stuff back and forth. I had no way to get my stuff. I put it all up on Craigslist for free. No one could even come and get it. Oh, my. No one could get my stuff. So I had to forfeit all my stuff that was in my Brooklyn apartment because the end of the week came, and the landlords got it, and they probably threw it all out. Oh, but I couldn't get anyone to move my stuff out. So every New York th- – it felt like New York had officially said – Get the hell out of here and never come back. They're like, anything you own in your parents' house is gone. Everything you own in your Brooklyn apartment is gone. New York said, don't ever come back here. And I said, all right, fine. That's So that was it. Hmm. So having, ab- <laughs> having absorbed all that and in the time since you've moved to Los Angeles talking to comedians about philosophy and finance, what's the... What's the last great bit of advice you've received? Anything recent? I'm, I'm trying to think about the last thing. I think the thing that struck me the hardest from all the philosophy, and I don't know if it was advice or if it's just something I came to from all the advice, mm-hmm. is that happiness is appreciation. Like, um, I think happiness is like a, a useless word. It doesn't really make sense. Like, mm-hmm. people are always searching for it and... How do you find happiness? And I think there is no such thing as happiness. There's only something called appreciation. So if you appreciate what you have, you appreciate the good weather, you appreciate your life, you appreciate the fact that you have food or clothes or a roof over your head, that's happiness. Like there was a study done with prisoners that uh, have life sentences and some of them are in solitary confinement and they asked them like, you know there's no light at the end of the tunnel. You know that you're never going to get to go and experience a million different things that you could be if you were free. So how do you not go insane? And they said, well, if you think about all the things you don't have, then you will go insane um, because there's infinite possibilities that you forego by being locked away in prison. Right. But if you focus on the things you do have, then you stay sane and you can actually have a quality of life. Like you, you think, oh, there's, a, there's an exercise yard. I have an exercise yard. Oh, I have meals provided for me. I have a place to sleep. They go, that's the only way to, to, to maintain sanity. So I kind of look at life like a big prison, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but you appreciate your your cell in the prison. Yeah. Okay. So on the flip side, uh, if somebody, I guess they wouldn't look you up in the phone book like you did with Harvey Picar. But if somebody looks you up on the internet and reaches out to you and you've never heard from them before and they ask you for advice, what's the first thing you tell them? The advice is what for what? For dealing with depression or for uh, getting I guess, into comedy? Or? I guess it would be for... 
Like, I guess it would be f- probably either for comedy or for podcasting or for magazines. The things that you've done, if they they hear your story and they they want to seek you out, what's the first thing um, you tell them? What I always tell people is what what Picard told me: is just do it. You know, just just go and do it. Don't don't make excuses why you can't do it. Just do it. See what happens. Um, I thought that was like the best advice, really, because. At the time, it was very scary advice because it's not what I wanted to hear, you know? <laughs> I think everybody wants to hear, like, oh, call this friend of mine and he'll make everything happen for you. Right. They want specific, easy instructions. Right. But that's not that's not going to happen, you know? Mm-hmm. The thing is, you got to go out there and it's all a big adventure, you know? I, I, I haven't hit big. Um, I've sort of gotten to a point where it, I'm not scrambling for rent every month, which is nice, mm-hmm. you know? So that's a huge it, step up from where i used to be where i'm like okay i don't have to worry about eviction every month i'm 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 comfortable in that way mm-hmm. but i haven't hit big you know i got a lot of people listening to a podcast that's the most i've ever been able to accomplish but i didn't have a hit magazine that that took off and like have some story like jay-z or something or mm-hmm. i don't know you know well not jay-z i, I am I having know. jay-z in the magazine would have been great that would have been great you're right <laughs> <laughs> but you have uh, but you have Ruben, had, Rick Ruben. But yeah. you have had, you know, multiple conversations with George Carlin and Right, right. I mean, I love everything I've been you able gotten to, to meet, do. You got to meet uh you were telling me you got to meet Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner and That was fantastic. You want to hear that Saul's story? just calling you up? Yeah. I I I am very good with elderly uh Jewish men. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I uh I interviewed Carl Reiner for Modern Day Philosophers, which mm-hmm. was really cool. And uh, after I afterwards, two days later, mm-hmm. I got a call from a private number. I'm sitting in my car, and I answer the phone, and I go, "Hello." He goes, "Danny." I go, "Yeah, it's Carl." I I go, "Who?" Because <laughs> I'm not expecting Carl Reiner to call me. I thought that's it. I'll never hear from him again. He goes, "Carl Reiner." He goes, "You don't remember me? I you were in my living room two days ago. You interviewed me." So. Now I knew it was him. I thought, let me try and be funny. Mm-hmm. So I, I go, uh, bald fella. <laughs> so he starts laughing. And, <laughs> and he goes, I've been telling Mel all about you. He wants to meet you. He goes, do you, uh, do you want to, uh, have dinner with, with me and Mel? I go, Mel Brooks. <laughs> he goes, yeah, come over and play with us. That was the term that he used. Mm-hmm. He says, you want to come and play with us? Uh huh. I go, yeah. Play with you and Mel Brooks? Yeah, it'll be fun. Come over and play with us. When are you available to have dinner with us? Mm-hmm. I go, oh, that's a tough one. Um, <laughs> when am I available to have dinner with Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks? Hold on a second. I'm going to look at my planner. He goes, okay. Like, uh-huh. this is a real thing. Right. I had a piece of paper there. I started, like, ruffling it around by the phone. I go, looks like any time, Carl. Any time at all. <laughs> <laughs> any day, any time. Mm-hmm. So he goes, all right, I'll talk to Mel and I'll let you know. Five minutes later, he says, come by Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. And uh, I come by, I, I show up at Carl Reiner's house and mm-hmm. uh, I'm sitting in the living room with him and he's got the TV on, but it's on mute. We're just sitting there waiting for Mel to show up. It's like uh, not much is being said. It was very awkward and and, and I was a bit uncomfortable, you know, because he was just sitting there and... Then his phone rings, which is right next to his chair, uh-huh. and he picks it up and he goes, hello, 
And he turns slowly towards me and he goes, Yes, he's sitting on my couch. Yes, I'm looking at him right now. I felt like I was part of an experiment or something, you know? It was like, you know, trading places or something. I thought maybe I'm like Eddie Murphy's character. They're going to switch me out with a successful comedian. So, uh... (laughs) See what happens. Yeah, he goes, uh, ten minutes, okay. He hangs up, he goes, that was Mel, he'll be here in ten minutes. And ten minutes later... The door bursts open like mm-hmm. uh, with a ton of energy and mm-hmm. almost like you know like a musical or something. You know, Mel just <laughs> bursts in. He goes, "Where is this guy? Where is he? Who? Hey, you, you drove here from New York?" I go, "Yeah. How, how'd you know? I saw the car outside. New York plates. What do you got there? Bottle of wine. How, how much did you pay for this?" I'm like, "Twenty-five dollars. Twenty-five dollars. I got to drink a twenty-five dollar bottle of wine. Forget it. I'm not drinking." Like he's just like, um, he's like, "So, Carl, what are we doing? We're sitting here. We're going inside. We're going to sit down." So we go and sit down to have dinner, and Mel, I felt, was kind of cold to me for the first 20 minutes. Like, mm-hmm. he, he was looking at me like, why the hell did Carl bring this guy here? Like, this is our time. Who is this guy? Why should he? Be, why should I give him any, any kind of warmth? Mm-hmm. I, I think he wanted me to feel uncomfortable and want to leave. <laughs> so he, I think he thought, Carl's crazy bringing this guy by. But then um, the topic of jazz came up, and I know a lot about New Orleans jazz, and Mel was very impressed by this, oh. and and uh, and Artie Shaw came up, who mm-hmm. Mel's a big fan of Artie Shaw, and I said, and now I can't even remember if it was six or eight wives that Artie Shaw had, mm-hmm. and I said, yeah, Artie Shaw, he was married to to Lana Turner, and he had like I don't remember six or eight wives. I got it right that night though, <laughs> but I, I either said six or eight wives, and then Mel goes, what the hell are you talking about? I didn't have Six or eight wives, whichever one. He goes, he goes, he had four wives. I go, no, no, no. He didn't, def- I definitely knew he didn't have four wives. Right. I go, maybe my number's wrong, mm-hmm. but I know it's not four wives. I know he had much more than four wives. What the hell? Why? This guy's got a lot of nerve. He goes, I knew. I knew him. You got some knife. He goes, I knew Artie Shaw. He was a friend of mine. He wasn't just someone I read about. Mm-hmm. I knew the guy. He goes, I, I know that he only had four wives. <laughs> so... Carl's publisher was there also, the mm-hmm. one who published Carl's books, this guy Larry. Okay. And, and Mel says, Larry, look it up. No, no, he goes, why is he telling me this, Larry? Larry goes, pulls pulls out his iPhone. He goes, I'll look it up, Mel. Mm-hmm. Take it easy. I'll look it yeah. up. He looks it up. Whatever number I said, either six or eight, it was the right number. Okay. He goes, let's say six, okay? <laughs> um, he, he goes, let's say eight. He says, eight wives, Mel. Mm-hmm. It's right here. What? Let me see that. He hands him the iPhone. Hardy Shaw had eight wives. Son of a gun, the kid is right. <laughs> he goes, huh. Man, it's a lot of wives. <laughs> and he's like, he's right. And from that moment on, a whole different Mel Brooks for the entire night. Mm-hmm. He was like, I won his respect. And like, all of a sudden, I don't know how much of his respect I won, but certainly a modicum more than I had. Right. But he, he he opened up. He was fun, like you see on TV. Mm-hmm. He was Mel. It was no more guarded Mel. It was mm-hmm. real Mel. And we had such a fun time, and we were laughing and telling stories, and they were asking me stories, and they were telling me stories, and Mel told me about how Woody Allen used to wait for him after a show of shows when he'd get out of work and trail him as he'd walk to the subway and ask him how to get into comedy, and he thought he was some annoying kid. And like, and he told me stories about Neil Simon and mm-hmm. Alfred Hitchcock and... And and at one point I even had Mel singing. It was fantastic. Uh, it was such a great night. And then uh, and then 
Three and a half hours went by, and Mel said, this is a racket. We never let anybody stay for three and a half hours. But now we're going to watch Jeopardy, so you got to get the fuck out. <laughs> so... So I said, the stories are true. They have to watch Jeopardy together. <laughs> yeah. So so I said, fair enough. So he goes. So Mel starts laughing and the, that dry laugh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> fair enough. I like that answer. Fair enough. He said, fair enough. And Carl goes in the other room and grabs me some CDs of his wife singing, and and gives them to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, all right. I'll see you guys later. And Mel says, don't worry. He'll be back. He'll be back. And I said, next time I come. I'm stepping it up. I'm bringing a $30 bottle of wine. So he laughed, and I thought, this is fantastic. I'm in with Mel and Carl. I never heard from them again. Mm. Never again. So it was a fantastic experience, but I also felt like like uh, maybe that was the experiment. Like, what if we made this kid feel like we love him mm-hmm. and then never contacted him again? <laughs> fair, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, so it was... Uh, it was really fun, though. I'm happy it happened. And but, for the record, it was eight wives. Eight I looked wives. it up. Oh. Artie Shaw was married eight times. See, there it goes. Eight wives. Well, Danny Lobel, uh, much like uh, you can appreciate your three and a half hours with, with Mel and Carl, I appreciated this this hour you, you spent with me and let me in your home and made me coffee. And Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate you being here. It's always fun to see you. I remember when you and Dylan Cadino mm-hmm. and... Uh, Todd from the Dead Frog. Right. You all came on Comical Radio and competed. I think you won, right? <laughs> I did win. You you, won- you 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 put together a trivia, a this, comedy trivia. The, the three of you were all running comedy sites. I wanted to see who actually knew the most about comedy, who was the most qualified to run a comedy site, and you won. And I think the test was effective because you're the only one whose site <laughs> is still active. <laughs> that's uh, that's true. So <laughs> that's true. I am the comicscomic.com is still a valid effective website. Right. So so my test worked. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, thanks Danny. Thank you, Sean. This episode of the Comics Comic presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.